Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Kaya, welcome to the Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth, Wajak Nation. I pay respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. On this episode, I head down the rabbit hole with the travelling exhibition at Bulabadip WA Museum in Perth, Acme's Alice in Wonderland exhibition. This exhibition features a mammoth array of archival material since Lewis Carroll's iconic and formative book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was first released in 1865. The exhibition takes you on a magical journey with early silent era films, even some of the actual uh, illustrations from when the book was first launched as well. Uh, it also heads to Jan Svankmeyer's haunting and eerie stop-motion feature, Alice, takes in Disney's animated version, and it carries us all the way to the recent Tim Burton entries. Along the way, there is also a wealth of knowledge about various different versions of the story, whether it be through drug awareness campaigns, anime, or even X-rated musical comedies, you name it, it's here in some capacity. Yet, don't let the mention of X-rated musical comedies make you feel that this is solely an adult experience, as kids of all ages can find something to enjoy here with a mystical maze-like hallway experience with small doors, spectacular mad hatter tea party experience where a bare table comes to life in front of you, and so, so much more. Once you've experienced the exhibition, you can also take part in the story time, which is for families with young kids and features a half-hour storytelling session on Friday and Sunday mornings. Additionally, on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays, while the exhibition is on, you can participate in an elaborate Mad Hatter's Tea Party with high tea sessions running at 10.30am and 2pm until the exhibition wraps on the 23rd of April. The exhibition is on right now as well, so if you're in Perth and you like these kinds of things, please head along and go and catch it. I absolutely loved it, and I know I'm going to go and see it once more. To help you give you a bit of an insight into what the exhibition is about, I chatted with the Director of Exhibitions and Touring, Chris Harris, about his favourite part of the exhibition, how the exhibition has been pulled together, and the logistics of bringing Jans Fankmeyer's puppetry to Australia and around the globe. Chris starts the conversation talking about the journey of the exhibition, which launched in 2018 in Melbourne at ACME, and has visited Singapore prior to landing in Perth. For more details, visit the museum.wa.gov.au website or jump to the link into the show notes. For now, here is my chat with Chris Harris. Just, just 
We designed the exhibition for touring and it started off really well in Singapore and um, you know, the season in Melbourne was hugely successful but that was back in 2018-19 and we put it on the road, it went to Singapore and was massively successful there too. There's a really great fan base and interest in Alice and, and Wonderland over there and you know, it sort of broke some records at the museum there which was the Art Science Museum and then went to New Zealand to, to Papa, the National Museum in Wellington. Again, it was really successful there, which is great. Um, and we have a good relationship with both those museums, so as we built it, we suspected it might go to those venues. But we are super happy that it came back to Australia and went to Perth. And actually, as, as the new museum in Perth was being redeveloped, they were already talking to us and they came over to visit the exhibition when it was on in Melbourne and were very keen to include it in their program. So we were really happy that it was part of the first couple of years program at the newly redeveloped Boulevard Museum and I was over there for the opening and it looked fantastic there so it was really exciting. Yeah it's so wonderful and there's a beautiful space for it as well it's um, I've been to see a few exhibitions there and it's this wonderful journey that you have that goes through I mean it's perfectly apt for Alice in Wonderland where it's this you are going on a journey in itself this wonderful experience of getting to see stories evolve as you're walking through the space. It's, I love it. It's great. We're, we're very fortunate to have it here. <laughs> oh, great. That's good. And that's exactly right. That's how it was conceived as a sort of series of, to take the story of Wonderland and, you know, the original tale and broken down into chapters, the chapters of the book, not all of them, but some select key chapters. But yeah, as you would have noticed, each chapter focuses on, a different bunch of creatives in different times who've made films or television about the exhibition. So you get a completely different perspective according to what part of the journey you're in. And then it also has this sort of overlay throughout the exhibition of um, the history of special effects in cinema. So, you know, it starts in the very early silent era and you end up in the Tim Burton heavily CGI, you know, highly special affected version of the film and you get to see all the sort of little stops along the way. But it's you know it's our own particular trip down down the rabbit hole. I'm curious how Acme decides what is going to be presented as an exhibition. How, what kind of discussions take place, and how do you end up discussing and deciding on something like Alice in Wonderland as a showcase piece? Uh, that's a fascinating question. I wish I had an easy answer. Um, we yeah, we. Uh, we don't get that many opportunities to develop our own large exhibitions for touring. We we do one every two years, you know. So we have to be really careful. You're right, you know, about what we choose to do. Um, and there's a few key things we wanted to talk about at that time. We wanted to reflect, uh, find a, a theme or a subject that reflected on the history of the moving image, but also looked forward and you know looked at where technology was going. It was also around the time. You know, it happened to be the 100th anniversary of the original book the year before, and, you know, that helped sort of plant the seed, I guess, because it was very current at the time and people were talking about Alice in Wonderland and all the versions of it. But there was also an undercurrent of sort of feminist readings of media at the time. The Me Too movement was really big, and the idea of a story that was about an empowered young girl or a young woman you know, discovering new worlds bravely, being curious and being rewarded for being curious was something that our curators you know, were really 
interested in. So, you know, there was a set of sort of, I guess, rough criteria that we had, which was about what's going to be popular, obviously, what what sort of subjects have material that's available, and 100 years of the moving image of, of Alice sort of proved after a very small amount of research to have lots of material and objects and costumes and things available for it. But also what's sort of topical, what's, what's an interesting way to look back and think about you know, the times we're in right now. And so it seemed to be a great subject to answer all those questions. Uh, walking through the exhibition over the weekend, you know, that, that aspect of curiosity is right there. And it was really wonderful to see uh, kids, adults, older people, all experiencing what curiosity felt like in the moment and seeing something, you know, in front of them, whether it be, uh, you know, the, the Queen's dress or even the Jans Fankmeyer, uh things as well, and then going into the Mad Hatter's tea room and experiencing that. That aspect of curiosity there was so strong and, and you know, it really, really felt uh, quite powerful. I'm curious for you as somebody who's guiding this, where that interest in curiosity comes from. Obviously, curiosity itself is something that we're interested in, but... What was that journey like for you to dig into that world of curiosity? Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, for museums uh, of any sort, really, curiosity, you know, we, we like to say that curiosity is the superpower and if, if you come curious or we can evoke curiosity in people, visitors to museums, then they'll be rewarded, whether they're young kids or adults or, you know, lifelong learners. So that's part of our ethos, I guess, is to try and encourage people to be curious. But... It was embedded in the story, obviously, curiouser and curious. There is the line everyone remembers. One of the things that we really wanted to do was to uh, encourage people to explore and and find things for themselves. And the way we did that, which it's, it's also an answer to your last question in a sense, why we did the show, we were looking at a whole lot of new digital platforms at the time and we were renewing our whole museum. And so the Lost Map of Wonderland was as a prototype for some of the things we were thinking about in terms of digital exploration of physical space. So you will have discovered you can walk through the exhibition with your map, which has a, an NSC chip in it, which is much like the chip in your credit card or, or your um, contemporary train ticket, and use that to, to unlock little magical things, you know, what video game designers call Easter eggs. Hidden, hidden gems in, in games. So for us, that was a big part. We could explore our use of digital technology, which is a really big thing for our museum, um, and embed it in the exhibition and encourage people to sort of explore. And then we, we extended that with the Lost Map by having four different versions. So we created a version that was full of riddles and other things, um, the White Rabbit version for children, and then there's the Red Queen version, which is a little more risque and, and focuses on some of the more sort of adult versions and stories and riddles in Alice in Wonderland. So, yeah, we tried to embed that throughout the entire exhibition in terms of a physical experience, a learning experience and a digital experience. It, what I enjoyed about the map itself was it created this communal experience as well. There were people who had different maps who were coming up to us and talking about it. Oh, what did you see? What did you experience? And that kind of 
vibe is is really wonderful <laughs> you know it's it, it, i imagine that's what you need from an experience like this absolutely that was uh, you know again as we were thinking about how to renew our museum and, and make it a, a much more social space we wanted to encourage people into our museum you know, get them off their phones and get them talking to each other and create spaces to allow that this exhibition was a prototype of that thinking encouraging people to communicate through that map and through the other little experiences that they have. You know, and so the Tea Party, which is the big digital experience, a, a sort of digital immersive version of of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, um, which I hope you got a chance to experience. We conceived that as you know, a group experience so that 20 people or more can sit around that table. And they might all be strangers, but they all get that sort of five-minute moment of magic together and then they can share it and get a sense of wonder out of it. So we hope that we've encouraged that sort of conversation or at least those sort of moments of wonder between strangers in the exhibition. I'm curious for you if there's a certain piece that you're really proud to have in the exhibition. For me, being a sort of, you know, in the art school, I went to art school in the 1980s and um, very influential on me at the time was young Schwankmeyer, the um, Czech animator. So having some of his, his puppets, he made... He made the sort of groundbreaking stop-motion animation version of Alice in, I think, 1985. And having some of the original material, the White Rabbit and the Mad Hatter and a few other um, props come over from Czechoslovakia for the exhibition, for me, is really gratifying. And it's also one of those things in the exhibition that a lot of people haven't heard of, uh, especially younger people, because it's you know now 40, 50 years old, and they just love it. And we were all thinking, oh, you know, they're quite creepy and odd and you know, very a, a long way away from, say, the, the very friendly Disney version of Alice that everybody does know, and allowing people to discover that and discovering that kids really enjoyed them and like a bit of that creepiness I loved. So, you know, that's my favourite piece. I grew up watching both the Disney version and then uh, I think I stumbled onto the, the Svankmaier version on SBS or something like that as a kid, and um, it's quite a formative film. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Yeah, and getting to walk through that exhibition was really fascinating because there were a few young kids around. And at first there was this this young girl who uh, was very upset by seeing the, the, you know, the puppets and stuff. And then as her mum comforted her, there was this experience of going, all right, it's actually not that frightening. And she became even more curious and interested by it. And calmed down and was like, oh, this is not bad. It's not going to hurt me. And so it was wonderful getting to see that kind of interaction because that's almost how I felt when I first watched the film too. Yeah, that's great. And I love that tension, you know, a little bit of fascination, fear, curiosity. That's excellent. Nice story. I'm curious as well, what were the discussions like with uh, Jan talking about getting these puppets across as well? I imagine there is a lot of uh, really great archival material here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That was a bit of a journey. He's still alive, which is fantastic, um, but quite elderly. And when we first approached him, we were seeking rights to um, just screen some of the original animation in the exhibition and then curator who was working on it at the time, Sarah Tutton, discovered that he actually did have a whole lot of the material and so we took that through with him and he was quite happy to lend it to us. Under pretty, you know, and they are very delicate, delicate items because they're old. So under pretty tight conditions, he sends two couriers or, you know, caretakers out with with those items. 
so they travel with the exhibition, but each time we um, pack them up and then set them up again, two of his people from his studio come out from Czechoslovakia to do that, which is great, and they're amazing. They hardly speak any English, but all they do is arrive and just start unpacking and putting things together. You can tell they're completely packed about it. They're great. Smoke lots of tech cigarettes and, you know, go out drinking at night and come back and put everything together. They're brilliant. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of care and a lot of effort that goes into getting something like that out of Europe and around the world, for sure. Definitely. And I mean, it, it, it's part of what makes these kinds of experiences so uh, brilliant because it is a rarity. It's getting to experience that in person that, you know, we're talking about these memories that have been created and getting to see that it's, you know, situates us in the moment as well. True. And I think there's still a lot of, you know, appreciation and love of original objects like that. You know, there's lots of immersive experiences around that are highly digital and, you know, amazing. But the mix, that's what's special about Wonderland. It has that mix of the sort of immersive and theatrical as well as, you know, really fascinating and original objects from, you know, Warner Brothers Studio or Disney Studio or from people like Jan Schrankmeier. Uh, as we lead into wrapping up, one of the, the experiences that closes the exhibit is that fantastic kind of uh, half-circle screen experience, which I thought was really quite brilliant. Uh, and we watched it a couple of times just because of the editing of it and the flow of it all. Can you talk through the process of, A, deciding what clips were going to be screened in that and also the editing of how that actually was organised? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that piece is called Alice's Evidence. Um, it focuses on the um, court case with Alice, but we we loosely called it as we were conceiving of it and designing it, Alice is Everywhere, because what we wanted was to demonstrate that Alice has reached you know every corner of the globe and has been embraced by different creatives in different countries across different times. So we wanted to sort of do a big montage mashup that really demonstrated the variety and, and, you know, endless variety really in the versions of, of Alice. And it was put together, cut together by Field Carr, who's a motion graphics designer here at Acme, who's really brilliant. Now we wrote a brief for him, much like I just described and said, you know, we don't care if you use film or adverts or animation or anime, just, you know, spend two months researching and find all the versions of Alice you can. And then, you know, put them back together in story. So you you remember there's even a little bit from the 1960s Star Trek, which has Alice references. There's a bit of Jefferson Airplane at, at Woodstock singing White Rabbit. You know, it covers a lot of different cultural sort of angles through there. Um, so it's, it's great fun to do. It's really that sort of amazing mashup of Alice as a cultural artifact, really. I, I really actually appreciated the wall of the names of the titles of everything that was there as well. Um, so it's given me like a something that I need to go and search and, and all this kind of stuff. But one of the titles, which I'm sure you probably have touched on before, but I was I was quite impressed uh, that the um, the X-rated musical comedy was in it as well, which you know is probably is a very taboo. You know, for me personally, there was I, I used to the video store that I used to go to uh, had a very eclectic collection, and they didn't really uh, you know 
differentiate kids' films from adult films. But also, unfortunately, you know, films like uh, Fritz the Cat uh, ended up in the kids' films, and then also Alice in Wonderland X-rated musical comedy ended up in the kids' films, and uh, some very alarming uh, childhood watching there. But I was impressed to see it. Uh, mentioned at least there. So um, it is quite literally the diverse array of all of the Alice in Wonderland. So congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, that's a, I'm glad you noticed that. Good pick up. And there is, there's not only that, We there's a couple of other bits throughout the show that, you know, they're quite adult. There's a, there's a piece in the Caterpillar section, which is essentially an anti-drugs video from the 1970s made by the American Alcohol and Tobacco Bureau, whatever they're called. But it's got all these fantastic drug references that's actually sort of almost like an advert for taking drugs. It's got all these great scenes of people having drugs and, and in an Alice context. So we're really keen to add some of that sort of fun and diverse and adult stuff. It's not just a kids' show by any means. You know? And as we said, Alice has found herself in you know all sorts of strange corners of the world. And yeah, we could have done a, a highly adult show. There's lots of pornographic versions of Alice too, which we chose not to not to include in the end but i'm very much looking forward to heading back and going and experiencing it again before it uh disappears from perth i know we've got it for a, a while yet but um these things are quite precious so of course we get to experience them only so often so it's wonderful that you've brought it to life uh, being able to share these stories and uh these artifacts and the history of what is one of the great stories i think i mean it's a formative story for a lot of people and getting to experience it in all the different capacities is is quite wonderful so thank you very much for bringing it to life and thank you for your time in talking about it as well i appreciate it uh pleasure thank you um i'm so glad you enjoyed it and it's great to have it in person as i said yeah and alice it's you know she's universal and it's been great to sort of demonstrate that and uncover all the different things that um, she's got involved with over 100 years. Fantastic. So thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. Well, have a lovely day, and uh, I'm, I will be across in Acme again uh, sometime later this year, so I'm looking forward to seeing whatever you've got planned for uh, Acme in the second half of, of this year. Well, our, um, our amazing winter show opens in, in early April, which is called uh, Goddess which is about the construction of the great female icons of film on screen and it's going to be a major, huge exhibition. So, yeah, come on over and have a look. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Feeling lucky? Nemecolon's Lady Luck Casino is under new management and better than ever with 26 table games and an array of slot machines for you to test your luck. Try your luck at the table games, hit the slots for the day, or stay overnight to enjoy Nemecolon's luxury accommodations, fine dining, and all that the casino has to offer in one breathtaking mountain location. Visit Nemecolon.com for more information and to reserve your stay. Lady Luck is open to the public. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.